0: Death will come to us all, this is certain. And yet, there seems to be so much stigma, taboo, fear and difficulty surrounding this inevitable part of life. I'm Sultran and this is What About Death? Everything you wanted to know about death, but were afraid to ask. Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast. Brought to you by karuna.org.au. As you enjoyed today's episode, we would love it if you could follow, subscribe and give us a star rating. Hopefully five stars. We will be posting new episodes every two weeks. So be sure to check back and let your friends and family know where they can find us too. In today's episode of What About Death? I have the great pleasure of continuing my conversation with Dr. Joanne Cacciatore. Today, Dr Jo tells me about her cellar care farm in Arizona and how people experiencing traumatic grief have been transformed through the connections and the magic that is made with the various animals on her farm. I'm interested also in your own perception of life and death and whether or not that's changed as a result of both your personal experience and your professional practice.
1: Well, I mean, life is just so fragile. What got me through a lot of really hard days, the first five or six years after my daughter died, was that I would think every day I live, I'm one day closer to her. So I'm not really, I'm not really afraid of death. I don't really know what happens when we die. I, I'm not sure even what my belief is around that. And I'm okay with that uncertainty. I do, you know, I, I do have a sense of, you know, oneness, connection, oneness that, that, that moves through time. It's hard to describe the, the Greeks call it henosis. And, and maybe I've always had this. I, i I've been vegan since uh, 1972. So I've had a sense from the time I was a young child of the suffering and pain and deaths of animals. And that was just, I was seven years old when I went vegan. And so I, I, you know, I just always had this sense of that, the pain of, of animals and that I didn't want to contribute to that. And in that reticence to contribute to that. I think I felt a sense of what I do to them. I do to myself and I do to my family and I do to the earth. And I don't think that that's changed much. I think that that's remained pretty static. Uh, I, I think that I got lost in it a little bit when my daughter first died. Uh, because when you're in such pain, all you can do is focus on your own pain. And so I think I kind of moved away from it. The, the, the sense of oneness, I, I I felt quite disconnected from everything in the world and also had a quite a hard time finding compassion from any, you know, stable human being with the exception of, um, well, and I guess this wouldn't be a human being, would it? My animals mm-hmm. who always seemed to be there when I needed them. Like just, they just showed up and just sat there with me, which is what I wanted and needed, Um, And so, so for a while there, I just felt a a disconnect that I think is not uncommon in trauma and grief, but it, but it, but it was always there. It just was kind of in the background instead of the foreground. And, and now it's come into the foreground in a much more ferocious way. (laughs) I'm, I'm very much committed to uh, the welfare of oneness. And that means all animals. And, and now we have a care farm, the Sella Care Farm, where we have 43 animals rescued from homelessness, uh, hunger, abuse, and even torture. And, and they all live here in harmony with nature. It's a sustainable farm, so we try to take care of the earth too. And we have grieving people who come from all over the world, including Cambodia, N- New Zealand. We have had clients from Australia, Canada, Canada. Uh, Brazil, Ghana, everywhere. I mean, so many places. And they come and they help us take care of these animals. And they connect with these animals. And they love these animals. And they see that these animals also have suffered fear and loss and loneliness and grief. And And it just, I can't, I wish I could put it to words what happens. I can't. I know that it's a funny word for a scientist to use, but it's just quite magical, the connections that happen here and the transformation that happens in those connections. And, and so I, I think my understanding of life and death really is has been static. It's just, it, it shifted for a while and then now it, it's intensified. It, and, and and that manifested in sort of this, this strong desire to help animals in need as well as humans in need.
0: The whole idea of connection is really uh, interesting. I mean, you spoke earlier uh, about this sense of loneliness that people often feel. And I wonder if, you know, the value of your cellar care farm, which is just beautiful and amazing, and I hope one day I can come and and visit. I wonder if sometimes people think that loneliness is only alleviated through other people and don't recognise that connection can be in any form, can be a connection to the ant walking across your yeah. your kitchen windowsill. And I wonder if your farm there is helping people to understand much more that we can connect with the universe in many different ways rather than loneliness only being alleviated through human connection.
1: Yeah, I think preliminary research sort of points to that. Yes. And that's the whole goal of, that's why we created this space, right? Because the more places we realize we can get connection, the better. And and in fact, I did a study with a, 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 a graduate student and some colleagues. And one of the things that we found, we looked at, we were looking at good, we, it's the. It's actually an open access study. So anyone can look at the study. It's, it's published in PLOS One and it's called Good Grief Support, the Actors and Actions, uh, Actors and Actions of uh, Effective Grief Support, something like that. I can't remember the exact title, but we looked at various human groups and we looked at doctors and mental health providers and medical staff like nurses and social workers and spiritual leaders, pastors, rabbis, first responders, crisis intervention teams. We looked at family and friends and colleagues at work. We looked at every human group who could potentially interact with grieving people and we asked how satisfied they were with the level of compassionate support received for whatever duration that relationship was we at the last minute i had this idea to throw in animals and pets and animals and pets outperformed every human group significantly i think the closest uh let's just do percentages it's easier to do with percentages I think 89% of grieving people were satisfied with the support they got from their pet or their animal versus the next category down was, oh gosh, was it funeral directors maybe at 65%.
0: I must say, I'm not surprised by that result.
1: Yeah. I I actually was surprised. As much as I love animals, and as 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 much as I know how powerful their presence can be, I did not expect there to be such disparity between the animals and the human groups. Um, I'm a little disappointed in the therapists, as you can imagine, um, <laughs> and spiritual leaders. You know, as a Zen as a Zen priest, it's a little disappointing to see, but. Um, I, I, I do think there's something to learn from animals, our animal kin, about about showing up when, when when others are in pain.
0: How do you think our understanding of grief impacts on our ability to engage with somebody who's grieving?
1: Well, I mean, I think our neocortex gets in the way a lot. You know, as human beings, we have the capacity to think a lot. Yes. <laughs> Which in some circumstances is just fine and in some circumstances is quite deleterious to ourselves and to others. And, and thinking mind, discursive mind tends to tell us stories about people we love or people we care about who are grieving or just stories about grief in general, like, you know, they should be over it by now. Or if I go and talk to that person, maybe it'll be contagious and my, and my 10-year-old will die in a car accident you know, or if I go talk to that person, that person's going to be sad and then they'll cry and then I'll feel bad and then I'll feel sad. I, I think that the more we know about a subject, as human beings, the more familiar we are with a subject, the less fearful we are. Yes. And I think as it, as it speaks to humans in terms of grief support, I think that our, our tendency to overthink gets in the way of love and our fear gets in the way of love. We we just don't know how to sit down with someone and shut up and listen. We perceive silence as an enemy.
0: I mean, it's not. It's actually a great ally, isn't it? But
1: Well, it is as long as you don't check out. You know, you lean into the person, you're there, your head is bowed with theirs, you're with them, you're feeling it, you're not checked out emotionally. Silence, you're not actually silent when you're doing those things. You're actually saying quite a lot. But it's in, you mean it's in, it's not in words necessarily. Not, exactly, exactly. Our words get us in trouble. Yes. <laughs> that, I think that's one of the reasons animals do so well. They don't have words. They just come up and put their head on your lap and stay with you when you're sad.
0: Yes, it's amazing, isn't it? I saw a um a video uh, a while ago, of a horse, I can't remember where it was, but a horse would go into a palliative hospice, and yes, uh, I, saw that. yes I mean it was just an absolutely remarkable thing. And he was allowed to; he had his handler, but his handler would take him in, and then he would choose which rooms he would go to. And the connection with the um, with the patients was like dramatic. Absolutely dramatic to see. I yes. mean, animals do have this special ability.
1: A- absolutely. I can tell you one thing without a doubt. When I'm dying, I am not, I do not want to be taken away from my animals off this farm. I want to be surrounded by them. I want someone to lay a blanket down, <laughs> put me in the grass, and let my animals climb on me. That's what I want. I, I do not want to be anywhere but here. Animals have an incredible capacity to connect. If we, if we don't coerce them, if we don't use them and abuse them, if we don't treat them like a commodity, like a, like a product, if we, if we treat them as individuals with respect and dignity that they deserve, they have an incredible capacity to give back to us tenfold tenfold. And that goes for every animal, cows and goats and sheep and dogs and cats, not just the domesticated horses and donkeys. We even have alpacas here.
0: Mm. So what do you see as the most important thing for people who are currently experiencing grief? Uh, in order for them to move with their grief, to be able to share their grief if they wish to or their trauma, what what can you offer them? What sort of suggestions or what encouragement would you give them?
1: Well, I'm not a big directive encourager, cheerleader kind of person, but one thing I know for sure is we we, all, we need to encircle ourselves with those who will hold space for us without judgment, without coercion, without pushing giving us whatever space and time we need. And if that if that if if that's an animal, then that's an animal. If it's a best friend, then it's a best friend. If it's a stranger, then it's a stranger. If it's a spiritual leader, it's a spiritual leader. If it's another person who's bereaved in the same manner, then so be it. But who we surround ourselves with is important. And that means that some relationships may have to be put on hold for a while because there can be some We may love someone very, very much, and they may love us very, very much, but their reaction to our grief might be quite toxic. And so that doesn't mean jettisoning the relationship or surrendering the relationship entirely. It just means I promise to circle back to this relationship when I feel a little stronger, when I've built a little more emotional muscle. Time and space. Yes, yes. And that makes all the difference in the world. I, I, I think to be lonely in grief is is one of the most harmful things that can happen for grieving people. And so please, in whatever way you can, try to ameliorate the loneliness by connecting to something and someone. Whether, whether like you said, whether it's an ant, the sky, a tree, nature, hiking, a river, or, or people who you trust, who, can hold, who are compassionate and who can hold your pain.
0: It's very sage advice.
1: (laughs) So tell me a little
0: bit more about Seller Care Farm. How did it evolve into a place for grieving people and people who are experiencing traumatic grief to go and connect? How did it all happen?
1: It started um, because I rescued a horse, Uh, never had a horse, never didn't know, don't know anything about horses, but I was hiking. (laughs) I was on a hike and there was an animal, a horse being used as a pack animal. And he had a back full of coolers and tents and backpacks. And he was hiking out of a very treacherous trail up a canyon about 16 miles without water. There's no water on the way. And he had fallen and his handler was kicking him in the face and punching him trying to get him up. And I happened to be hiking that day (laughs) and was three minutes into the trail on my way down. The horse was on his way up. And I came around the corner and saw the scene. And to make a very long, very, very long story short, it took me about three and a half days to rescue him. When we finally got the packs off of him, we could see that he was incredibly emaciated. He had open wounds all over his body. The spine, the bones of his spine were actually exposed. They had worn down, the packs had worn down through the hair and through the skin and through the muscle all the way down to the bone. And, uh, he was about 600 pounds underweight. It was, it was really, I've never seen anything like it. It was so awful. I, I was, I was, I left my body. It was that bad. Anyway, it took me three and a half days to rescue him. We rescued him. My first horse knew nothing about horses. Uh, no one thought he was going to live, but through sheer will and love, Mm. he lived. And, About three weeks after I got him, I have a lot of clients I work with who who are native clients. Uh, They belong to indigenous North American tribes. And one of my clients asked me after our session, could I go and sit with your horse? She had heard about the horse. And I said, yeah, of course. Sure. Absolutely. Do you want me to stay with you? She said, no, just him by himself. So I said, okay. And then I put a, a bench in there and she sat with him. And he walked over to her and he put his head down and just stood with her. And I walked away to give her some space and I could hear her weeping, just really loudly weeping. And I thought, well, he's a better therapist than me. And so I started looking into, um, you know, hippotherapy or equine therapy. And, And what they described wasn't what I was seeing, because usually in hippotherapy, they halter the horse. And you walk with a horse with a rope and or you mount the horse with a saddle. And that wasn't what was happening. This was something else. And so then I started researching care farming and how effective care farming was in an agricultural setting for people, not, not for grief. I couldn't find anything on trauma and grief. They use it mostly with people who are diagnosed with serious mental illness in over in Europe, or with people who um, are transitioning from the criminal justice system from prison mm. to civilian life again, and I thought, oh, we could probably do something like this for grief, but the caveat was that that these were working farms, and so many of these animals were treated as commodities. They were sent to slaughter. They were milked. Their babies were stolen from them so that for their for, for the mother's milk, and babies were sold for slaughter for veal or for to become dairy cows. And I, you know, I knew there was no way, <laughs> being who I am, there's no way that's going to happen. So we'll make it a compassionate Ahimsa care farm where no animals are expected to, to do anything. They're not coerced. They're not forced. We don't use them for their wool. We don't use them for their milk or for their meat or for or to reproduce babies. They just have absolute liberty and freedom to be who they are. And it has been a beautiful thing. We started with three horses and, hmm, let's see, three dogs and three horses. And then we added, and now we have 43 animals Wow, who have all been rescued. Well, no, I take that back. Four of them are not rescues because we rescued three pregnant mothers. We didn't know so huh. two, goats we res- two of the goats we rescued were pregnant and one of the donkeys. And what's very interesting is that means that there are four animals on the farm because uh, one of the goats gave birth to twins. Mm. So there are four animals on the farm who have never known anything but love, never known any kind of coercion, nothing but love. And they are, quite, they are actually different from the other animals. You can see their, their trauma response. They're less fearful. <laughs> For example, when I take the mower out... To mow the other goats who were not born here run away, but the goats who are born here aren't afraid of it. So they and they were, and and all the goats were quite young when we got them. So it's not like they were, it's because they were that much older. They were all quite young when we rescued them. So so their their sort of startle response, their fear responses diminished when you compare it to the other animals. It's quite interesting actually. And do you find
0: that some animals connect more with the people that come along than others? Or what's your observations?
1: Yeah, that's also an interesting question. I think, so all the animals connect, but some people connect differently to the animals. So, so for example, um, you know, one of our bereaved moms lost twins. Her two babies died. And so she relates to one of our sheep, Shireen, because two of her babies died not before before we rescued her her two babies were killed in a coyote attack and and they kind of Shireen is a, a very timid sheep but she wasn't really timid with this mama she was she was much more open with her and they were they sat together and they spent time together which was unusual for Shireen our sheep so so it, it's very again it's just really interesting to see how some of this happens i'm not presupposing anything supernatural per se. Maybe I'm just, maybe what's happening is just a deeper sense of intuition or knowing, deeper, that comes from deep listening. I don't know. It's very interesting. So how do people access the farm? Oh, yeah, we have a website. It's um, com S-E-L-A-H, carefarm.com. There's lots of videos there. We've even collected data and published some studies and We'll start collecting data again once you know COVID ends and we can resume normal client loads. So you, there's a lot of information available on our on our website. Lots of wonderful videos you can watch to to meet our amazing animals. And you also have the um, the Miss Foundation.
0: So tell yeah. me a little bit about that.
1: The the Miss Foundation is a nonprofit organization that helps families. Um, whose children are, die- are dying or have died. And um, the Sella Care Farm is one of our programs. Like the Kindness Project is one of our programs. We have a HOPE mentor program where we match families with, uh, with families who have been through similar tragedies. So the Miss Foundation is this, you know, larger umbrella nonprofit that has all of these different programs available. We send out family support packets and we Uh, We just try to get people through the longest, darkest nights that they'll ever know, because the last thing we want someone to do is have to go through this experience alone. Mm -hmm. It's hard enough to go through it when you're well supported, but going through alone is really, it's unfathomably painful.
0: So then finally, I've taken so much of your time, but uh, but finally, I'd just like to ask because I guess the external circumstances that bring pain and suffering, such as death and the death of a child or the death of anyone um, that we uh, love. So where do you think gr- that grief fits with an aspiration for contentment, despite the inevitable pain that will come with losing someone that we love? hmm
1: what a great question because what I tell people is that the meaning of life that 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 the meaning of life is not happiness the meaning yes. of life is to, to be content with what is and and to have some purpose that's bigger than yourself mm. which of course comes from the great thinkers like Viktor Frankl and even from within many uh, spiritual uh, belief systems belief traditions like Buddhism you know, that this idea of doing something for someone else. So, you know, this idea of contentment, I am not content that my daughter died. I am content with how I feel and I accept how I feel about how she died. And I am also content when I'm in a place of deep grief, which comes even 27 years later. It was just her birthday. It was her 27th birthday on the 27th. And so, 27 years later for me, I still feel deep, deep grief and I still feel deep sorrow and sometimes deep guilt. And I'm content with that. I don't need to change that. I accept all of it. And to me, that's, that's where true, if you're going to use the word happiness is, that's what real happiness is. It's content with what is and do you think
0: also part of that uh, contentment and acceptance relates not just to your own response to grief but accepting that others will respond in their various ways to your grief
1: well i can say that now 27 years later but i couldn't say it at year 5 i can tell you that yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know it's uh it's 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 quite hard it feels uh, it can feel for grieving people. It can feel like psychological violence. It can feel much like other kinds of prejudices and oppression. and um, and so it, it really hurts quite a lot until we build some equanimity and emotional muscle to carry to carry the weight of that sense of loneliness and God, people just don't get this. <laughs> you know, there is that but also beyond that, sort of a kind of insular reaction to it. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like now when someone says something ridiculous to me, such as, well, um, at least it wasn't your oldest child who died because it would be so much harder to lose a 10 year old than a baby, Mm. which is absurd, right? As a mother, I can say that's absolute absurdity. So (laughs) rather than internalizing that Really harmful and really harmful narrative. It kind of slides off me like psychological Teflon, and it's just like someone saying something to me, like, "Well, well you can't see me now." So physically, I'm I'm only five foot four, and I have dark skin and dark hair and dark eyes, and <laughs> and it would be a, it would be much like someone coming to me and saying, "Wow, you're really tall, and you have really <laughs> lovely blonde hair and blue eyes," and I would look at them and say oh, well, thank you for your opinion. <laughs> You're quite a good person, yes. right? And so it just slides off of me because it's not my truth and I don't have to internalize it. But I'm, st- I'm not willing to let other people off the hook, though. I think we have a responsibility to others' emotions, and I think we need to be quite careful with grieving people because they're quite vulnerable, and so and so, yes, at, yes, at some point, I built the Teflon and the Equanimity to just dismiss what insults my soul, but I don't think that I think that we need a lot more heartfulness and mindfulness about the way grief is treated, and grieving people are treated in cultures all around the world.: So
0: one more question then. <laughs> Sorry, that's <laughs> come from that. Is do you think just generally talking about death and grief would help society to have a greater empathy and understanding for those who are experiencing dying, death, and grief?
1: I do. I think those conversations probably need to be separated. I yeah. think that we need to talk about death and dying more and and absolutely we need to talk about what is normal grief when it's catastrophic absolutely because all people think about when they think about grief is the kind of grief that happens when my 90-year-old grandma dies of cancer mm. which is really sad and hard to see but it's quite different than my than my child dying so so i think we need to have honest conversations not to dismiss and not to, uh, not to compare grief at all, because it's much more connected to attachment and love. But I think not having honest conversations creates a, a, an unknowing in people and then a comparison. So well, my neighbor's mother died and she was 90 and, you know, she was, or grandmother died and she was 90 and gosh, she was fine in six months. And, you know, and your child, you know, your child died of cancer after going through seven, Years of chemotherapy and surgeries, and you know, hope and dashed hope, and hope and dashed hope, and hope and dashed hope, and then died, or your three children were murdered. I mean, this is this is the reality of what I see. There, there, there is an edge to trauma that we have to start talking about as it relates to grief. So,
0: how do you think we can create the space to be able to do that, like a safe space
1: to be able to do that? things like this, right? Yeah. We're talking about it in a safe way, in a gentle way. And I think people need to continue those conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we need better pedagogical models. I think universities need to be teaching more. When I when I first started, I'm a professor at ASU, associate professor at ASU. And when I first started at ASU teaching there, there was one class on grief and it was gerontologically focused. So, And my comment to the professor teaching it was, I mean, it's fine to teach a gerontological class, but where's, where are we talking about the deaths of spouses to homicide or suicide or early death or the deaths of young siblings or middle-aged siblings or the deaths of children at various ages or babies? Where are we talking about those? Mm. And the answer was we're not. Yes
0: i mean that's and that, an, that's certainly uh, um an implication towards our conditioning isn't it to only look at death for people uh, who are old and aging rather than the reality of death is that people die you know at every moment uh, along the continuum of time so that's right
1: that's right and and that when it's untimely when it's out of space and time for people when it's an unexpected death it can really take us it can really just bring us to our knees and Mm -hmm. and we need to be able to talk about the effects of that trauma on people as well as the grief. So we call it, I call it traumatic grief.
0: Oh, it's fascinating. Look, I really do appreciate the fact that you've taken so much time to speak with me. It's been a really, really interesting topic, and I wish you all the very best with your ongoing work. I think it's wonderful. Again, the book is called Bearing the Unbearable. It's a beautiful book about grief and loss. Thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with me here today.
1: Thank you and thank you everyone for listening and for being with us and um, ahimsa
0: to all. (laughs) Thank you. In our next episode of What About Death, I speak with Emeritus Professor Rolly Sussex from the long-running ABC Brisbane radio program A Word in Your Ear. Rolly explains the language surrounding death and how it pervades our perception of death and mostly in a negative way. I look forward to your company then. Thank you for listening to What About Death? podcast, brought to you by karuna.org.au. Don't forget that we have more to look forward to with new episodes dropping every two weeks.
1: If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a star rating, hopefully five stars. And remember to follow, subscribe, and tell your friends and family about us too.